Welcome, everyone, to episode 87, Cancer Stem Cell Evasion. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm surviving barely. I'm just back from Hawaii. I'm back actually oh, for a week, but it guy. seems like a month. Well, listen, poor guy is right. <laughs> If you were there, I'd be sympathetic to you. It's so beautiful over there. The people are so sincere and nice that when you come back, it's excruciating. I mean, I usually go on trips with, you know, the whole thing. If if your kids are there, it's not a vacation. It's a trip. Mm -hmm. Well, my kids were there and I still didn't want to come back. I wanted to stay in the misery of child rearing because (laughs) I was in uh, Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii. Good holiday. That was good. It's good, but it's over. Back to work. Ugh. Yeah. Back to your New York life. Right. How about you? How was my week when I was in? Let me guess. Was it 80 degrees in Portland? I wouldn't be surprised. No, it is very cold and rainy in Portland. I spent the whole time imagining a beautiful Hawaiian beach because I had to go to some kind of a happy place in this gray, miserable, cold place called Portland. <laughs> Well, good. I have to say I'm glad. I'm glad someone was miserable while I was happy. There you go. Now now you can be happy. Silver lining for me. Silver lining. That's right. All right. Time to get down to some business. Make sure you check us out at thestemcellpodcast.com where you can find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, we have a great show today, and we're going to discuss the latest research and stem cell news, and we are interviewing stem cell scientist Justin Lathia about his work on understanding stem cells in glioblastoma. But first, let's round it up. What do you say, Dalen? Yes, yes. We actually did a little bit of Justin Lathia in a past roundup, and of course... Mm -hmm. We were uh, interested in his work, so we brought him on the show. But before we get there this week, I'd like to introduce one of Connexon's most popular newsletters, Cancer Stem Cell News. It's appropriate. Today we're talking about glioblastoma, a viciously aggressive cancer. As with all of Connexon's 20 science newsletters, Cancer Stem Cell News keeps readers current on the latest findings and technologies in their field while saving time. They let you get more research done because you spend less time digging through the literature for the good stuff. Subscribe at cancerstemcellnews.com and check out their other newsletters while you're there. Kiki, are you ready to round up your stories? Oh, yeah. I'm ready to research rumble. Bring it on. All right. First up, oh, Zika. We just can't uh, get away from Zika. Our old friends. Yeah, you know, even though it's winter time, winter has kind of brought a lull in the Zika news, but it's still there, especially in the Southern Hemisphere. But this news is related to the United States and Zika prevalence and relation to birth defects. Certain birth defects, like microcephaly, were 20 times more prevalent in babies born to Zika virus-infected mothers in the United States in 2016 than before the virus cropped up here in the United States. This is suggested by a CDC study. This is published March 3rd in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. They examined data 
was collected through birth defect surveillance programs in Massachusetts, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia in 2013 and 2014. And in that time frame, which was before Zika appeared in the United States, Zika just appeared in three out of every 1,000 live births. But from January to September 2016, 26 babies out of 442 which were born to mothers suspected of having Zika virus infection during their pregnancy, had these birth defects. And so that's a massive increase in birth defects. Yeah, although just to be clear there, they were measuring out of all births, right? All live births, three defects for all thousand live births. So Zika wasn't really even in play in the front of that. I think the authors themselves kind of declared the limitations of the study, but still very chilling. And also there are a couple of data sets that were used also using the U.S. Zika Pregnancy Registry. Because they're different data sets, these data are collected using different measures and they're not exactly directly comparable. But the findings do suggest there is an increase in certain Zika-related birth or brain defects in those babies born to Zika-infected mothers. So don't get bitten by a mosquito and infected with Zika. There we go. While you're pregnant. Done. Done. Easy. Easy to fix that. This is really cool research. The next paper I have here published in Nature and Nature Microbiology on February 27th. Researchers from Vanderbilt University have two separate studies, one in nature, one in nature microbiology, two separate teams working on sterility mechanisms that are at work in Wolbachia bacterial infection in mosquitoes. And there's this fascinating thing that takes place that's called cytoplasmic incompatibility, where if you have a female mosquito that's been infected with these Wolbachia bacteria, but not the male, then the cytoplasm, there are certain genes involved, certain components involved that induce sterility of offspring. But if you have both male and female infected, those genes work together to create infected offspring that can then procreate further to keep spreading the Wolbachia infection. And so these researchers are looking at the possibility of finding out, you know, what genes are responsible for this? How does the mechanism work? And maybe, you know, with the possibility of maybe being able to use it at some point against mosquitoes to sterilize them, to reduce the prevalence of mosquitoes that are potentially Zika or dengue virus spreading vectors, right? They found a pair of genes called CIF-A and CIF-B that are connected to the sterility mechanism that Wolbachia uses. These genes are not located in the DNA of the bacteria, but in a virus that's embedded in its chromosome. So we've got like this crazy multi-level like Russian nesting doll process going on here. A virus is embedded in the Wolbachia bacterium and the Wolbachia get into the mosquito and it's this whole crazy process. But they basically were able to synthetically reproduce this sterility mechanism in fruit flies. So they took an uninfected male that they genetically modified to turn on these genes that are induced in Wolbachia infection. And then they used un modified uninfected males to mate with Wolbachia infected females, and they were able to create sterile offspring. 
So there's this ability, they call it infected females, to rescue the modified sperm. And then researchers at the Yale School of Medicine, their paper that was in microbiology, they theorized that this gene pair actually consists of a toxin gene, which they call SIDB, and an antidote gene called SIDA. And they in inserted the toxin gene into yeast, activate it, the yeast was killed, and then if they had the SIDB and the SIDA, the, the toxin and the antidote, the yeast survived. So there's some really interesting stuff going on here, digging into the mechanism of how this sterility mechanism takes place. You know, it's fascinating to just as you're describing it, I'm thinking of why the heck is this virus even doing this? But it occurs to me, if you're a viral genome, you want to conserve your genomic integrity. That's your number one thing, right? You get in there, you don't want to get chopped up by the host. Mm -hmm. So you put in this mechanism. If you break me up, you're going to die. You need the venom and the anti-venom. You take out one of them, you're going to die. It's such a fascinating mechanism how that at the viral level, as you yeah. said, matryoshka doll style is then playing out. Mosquito really it's bizarre and fascinating and has a lot of potential. I love it. Yeah. Get rid of those mosquitoes. They serve no purpose. <laughs> I know. They, they, they do. They serve no. a purpose. No, they don't. We just want to get rid of the ones that are bad vectors. Oh, yeah. Disease. Like we can pick yeah. and choose. That's yeah. like a classic <laughs> mistake. Look at you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The final solution for mosquitoes. Come Keep on, me. I'm a biologist. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> just the bad ones. We're just, just going to get rid of you guys. We'll keep you good guys. Another very neat study. Research published a while ago, but this is a new uh, report at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, which took place February 17th. Researchers are looking at the fluorescing ability of DNA. So DNA and proteins normally don't give off light, right? We are not flickering beings giving off. I mean, maybe we do have some light signals we give off. But researchers, to get past this, we've had to come up with fluorescent dyes and other things that we tack on to proteins and DNA to be able to see them under microscopes. But researchers at Northwestern University have actually discovered that we can elicit fluorescence in DNA. If you shine a particular wavelength of light at DNA, it makes it actually turn on. The DNA will emit light if it's hit with the right frequency. And it's brighter than most fluorescent tags. And so now they have designed a setup that excites cells with light and then collects the spectra of the emitted light and allows them to discern different kinds of biomolecules. And their setup is called Cyclon. This mm. stands for Spectroscopic Intrinsic Contrast Photon Localization Optical Nanoscopy. Does it matter what it stands for? It sounds awesome. <laughs> it sounds great, right? But they've already used it to look at the inner walls of microtubules. And they've also collected images of structures that are about 6.2 nanometers, nanometers across, and DNA molecules are about three nanometers across. And they're hoping that they're going to be able to use this technique to actually explore the more physical, morphological changes that occur at this nanoscale when mutations take place, right? When there are epigenetic changes, when there are mutations that create cancer, what is actually physically happening? And they're hoping that they'll be able to visualize this. 
But you know what's occurs to me? A lot of techniques that may be clinical are kind of like, well, you can't do it clinically because you have to introduce this agent to see the DNA. I mean, specifically like pre-implantation genetic diagnosis of embryos. I know we have to sacrifice cellular material. We have to get a biopsy and that cellular material is done, done, you know, that's not mm-hmm. viable anymore. So this really raises a prospect to me. Are we going to be able to maybe do like a non-invasive measure of the kind of uh, euploidy mm-hmm. of cells, specifically reproduction or anything? I mean, that's a big deal. If we can non-invasively see what's going on in the DNA, that opens up a lot of possibilities in, in diagnostics. So pretty cool stuff. Very cool stuff. New methodology, new techniques. This is great. And it's all because somebody was like, I wonder what happens if we hit DNA with just the right wavelength, right? Can we excite it like other molecules? Amazing. Answer is yes. Yeah. Of course we can. Of course we can. Final story for the roundup uh, has to do with diabetes and controlling diabetes and health outcomes. There are multiple ways to reduce diabetic diabetes influences on health. There's management of diet and exercise. Obviously, there's the pharmacological use of insulin to be able to control it. There's gastric sleeving, which you take a sleeve and you stick it on the stomach and it reduces the volume of the stomach so you don't eat as much. And then there's another method that was checked out in this study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on February 15th that involves bypass surgery, which is actually taking out part of the stomach and the intestines so that you have reduced size of stomach as well as reduced digestion time. This study followed 134 people with type 2 diabetes for five years to compare these different weight loss methods that I've mentioned to find out which ones are the best, which one actually works the best. And at the end of the time, this is like very striking, still 134 people, not a very large study, but at the end of the five years, they found two of 38 patients that had only followed diet and exercise no longer needed insulin to manage their blood sugar levels, only two out of 38. And now compare this to 14 out of 49 who'd had the gastric bypass and 11 of 47 who had the gastric sleeve. So in general, patients who had been diabetic for less than eight years were more likely to no longer need insulin at the end of the five-year period after a gastric bypass or the gastric sleeving. And surgery is highly invasive to be able to get a health outcome as opposed to diet and exercise, but it seems that there is a large difference in benefit. So study is also one of the few to show that bariatric surgery can help those with only mild obesity, which is defined as a body max between 27 and 34. So yeah, scientists are still trying to figure out how this affects the body's metabolism and also changes gut microbes because we, as we've talked about before, microbial population in the gut also has a lot to do with this kind of stuff. So the researchers are going to be looking at longer term data in the future, combining their results with similar research at three other U.S. sites, and their goal is to follow patients for up to 10 years as opposed to just the five years. One of the downsides of this is that even with the medical therapy, even with the diet and exercise, or people in the surgical group did report improvements in their quality of life, but not in emotional well-being. So 
diet and exercise management might actually do more to help with the stress management, whereas surgery is not. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because they when they do the surgery, you like literally cannot eat too much. So right. maybe that that has to do with some of the the emotional issues there. They're just they were eating their feelings and now they can't anymore. But you know what the takeaway for me is, and I don't know, I'm sure they controlled for this and there was there was oversight in terms of the medical interventions, the strictly medical diet exercise. Mm-hmm. But what I take away from this is that if you leave it up to people, they can't save themselves. So you better, you know, go in there and cut their stomach up or put a sleeve around it. And I wonder if you could really force the medical or lifestyle diet and exercise, if you could enforce them in a way that was truly, you know, not counting on the people themselves or their self-reporting, mm-hmm. if it would compete. But, you know, suffice to say that it gets the job done. These surgeries really get the job done. It's dramatic. You see these people, they lose hundreds of pounds. It's nice to know there's also a health benefit in terms of their metabolism. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, even with the numbers, it's still not even 50% of the patients who get it have a benefit, actually see their diabetes go away. You know, it's a, still only a, a small proportion, a quarter, you know. That's the best we can do, huh? Less than 50%. Yikes. We've got to be able to figure out how to do better because this is not working. We're approaching like, 50 million people with diabetes, maybe? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just made that number up, but it's a big, big number, and it's not getting better. We're getting, well, we're not necessarily getting fatter anymore, but I don't think our cardiovascular health and diet is improving that much. Ah, move to the Pacific Northwest, the land of people who hike. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You know, you're right. Actually, you people on the West Coast really are just in good health. Good for you. Smug, kiki, smug little. Uh. <laughs> uh, tell me some stem cell science, Dalen. All right. If I can get over my impending fatness as I <laughs> sit here. Kiki, by the way, is hiking while she's doing the show. She's I am. Going, I've got a standing uh, desk. I'm like standing up, dancing around. The desk is on a Stairmaster. She's a freak. I do not have a hiking desk. Come on. Well, we're going to make one for you. All right, so let's get into some stem cell stuff. You know, everyone knows from eighth grade health class, if not before, how it works. You know, you take a sperm, take an egg, you put them together, that's how you get an embryo. Well, not so much anymore. You can kind of bypass that. Researchers have been able to create an artificial mouse embryo uh, using two types of stem cells and a scaffold, okay? This is a big milestone. Why? Because like I said, usually you didn't get an embryo outside of fertilization, but this bypasses that and it helps the researchers moving forward to better understand these precarious early stages of development. So the approach was taken by research team at the University of Cambridge, led by Magdalena Zernica Goetz. She's a hero in the field of embryology. She's done it all. What they did is they used embryonic stem cells, which eventually formed the whole body of a mammal. And they combine them with these extra embryonic trophoblast stem cells. That's kind of like the shell of the egg at the blastocyst stage. It's what allows implantation into the uterine epithelium and develops some extra embryonic tissues at the interface of the mom and the baby. They go on to form the placenta, in fact. And the scientists, they combine these two cells and they put them on a 3D scaffold that was covered with extracellular matrix so they'd attach. And they put this whole structure together to make a growing and self-assembling unit. So to quote 
Dr. Zernika Goetz, both the embryonic and extra embryonic cells start to talk to each other and become organized into a structure that looks like and behaves like an embryo. It has anatomically correct regions that develop in the right place and at the right time. The team says that early attempts to grow embryos have struggled because they relied only on the ESCs. You know, everyone has thought that ESCs, the embryonic stem cells, they form the whole body and maybe they would form the extra embryonic tissues too. But if you don't combine them together at the right, with the right timing, it just hasn't worked. It needs to be really closely coordinated. Dr. Jernica Goetz says, it's as if these different cells are telling each other where to go in order to form the embryo. So in the absence of the one, then maybe the embryonic stem cells, in the absence of the trophoblast stem cells, the embryonic stem cells don't really have the instructional cues that allow them to self-assemble. Again, to quote Dr. Zernika Goetz, these cells truly guide each other. Without this partnership, the correct development and shape and form of the time and the timely activity of key biological mechanisms just doesn't take place properly. So they compare the synthetic embryo development to the one a real embryo and found that it had the same pattern, roughly speaking. Embryonic stem cells clustered at one end, the trophoblast stem cells clustered at the other, and they opened up two cavities in each sector that would eventually maybe create the kind of proamniotic cavity where the embryo and the body will take shape. The embryo, although they didn't try to implant it, they presumed and surmised that it's likely as far as this particular kind of artificial embryo would go in terms of normal development. And that's because there's another cell type in there, the uh, visceral endoderm that ultimately forms the yolk sac, which is an important membrane during embryonic development. And without that yolk sac, you don't get the nutrients that allow the embryo to grow and the network of blood vessels that allow for you know, metabolism and exchange of oxygen and toxic metabolites. So the ESCs in the trophoblast stem cells have not really been combined to grow a bona fide embryo. But Zernika Goetz has something else in mind for these artificial embryos, in spite of the fact that they may not develop into normal babies or fetus. And obviously, I don't think many people would allow that to happen in the human. But there are a, a real shortage of human, natural human embryos that we can use for research, again, for obvious reasons. So Dr. Zernika Goetz is thinking that using this kind of hack of an embryo, this artificial embryo that won't form a true embryo post-implantation, but it'll allow us to look at events up to like 13 days after fertilization. Wow. Usually the embryo implants the human embryo at around six or seven days. So this will allow us to like double the span for which we can get useful information about human development. To quote Dr. Zernika Goetz, we think that it'll be possible to mimic a lot of the developmental events occurring before 14 days using human embryonic and extra embryonic stem cells using a similar approach as our technique, she says. We are very optimistic that this will allow us to study key events of this critical stage of human development without actually having to work on embryos. Knowing how development normally occurs will allow us to understand why it so often goes wrong. And compared to mouse, that's a lot. Human embryogenesis is a very delicate thing. It yeah. doesn't, not as robust as mouse. So, and there's nothing really we can do to study it and understand why it goes wrong. So this New research published in Science by Dr. Zernika Goetz Group, I think, is a real big step in the right direction and another jewel in her crown. I don't know. I want her to throw that yolk sac stem cell in there and see what happens. Right? How far is this artificial embryo going to go? Like, how viable, how accurate is it? I want to know, like, is this the step toward, like, really embryos? I mean, is it... <laughs> 
how far would it go? Are there going to be, because it's a hack, will they, there be errors in development just because it's a hack? I mean, it looks fine up to 14 days, as she said. The, the patterns are the same, but how far off is it? I mean, th this is really important, basic insight type work. Yeah. But, you know, oh, in the mouse, they should. And I'm sure she is. She's dumping in visceral endoderm in there. She's trying to make an actual baby all from right? the in vitro stem cell population. She's got to be because that's what she does. She does crazy, crazy stuff. You're <laughs> crazy. But, you know, taking it to the human, Kiki, I know you want it to happen, but you're a real trailblazer and you're also a bit crazy. I mean, with the mouse embryo, I want to know how well that will work. I mean, that also will give us, you know, implications for the possibility of this kind of technique for humans as well, you know, different species, but at the same time, how far can we hack? Oh I want to know. You crazy stem cell scientists. See, I have a promise <laughs> to my wife that if I can cut my DNA out of the equation, we will have a third child with just her DNA. <laughs> Cause because hers is the better be DNA. Yeah. yeah. I'm not adding much to the equation. So maybe this is a means to that end, but. And, and, and your work, I, I mean, how interesting, I mean, for in vitro fertilization for people with fertilization issues, how easy will it be? I mean, people are working on artificial eggs, artificial sperm, putting these, you know, being able to inseminate or, you know, start the reproductive process. How far, what can we do? Oh my gosh, this study is blowing my mind. It's blowing my mind too, because I'm just getting used to the idea of making stem cells into gametes. And now they're like just cutting to the chase. And I don't, I'm just catching up to the whole gametes thing. So yeah. my mind is officially blown. Uh, yeah. Please bring them up if you come visit me. Next, you know, if your mind wasn't blown before, I'm going to take you in an orbit, girl. Stem cell science in space. Can you Woo! believe it? Yeah, what? Yeah. She says, now, don't get me wrong. I don't think we're going to be making embryos on the scale of these advanced research stories in science, but we're going to do a little bit of stem cells in space because why not? The SpaceX rocket, you know SpaceX. Mm -hmm. They had some hurdles, but I think they're kind of reinventing, you know, space travel. And maybe we know how it is for the postdocs. In 50 years when you're doing space tourism, you can go into space and you won't even have to stop your stem cell cultures, you postdocs. You can take the work with you. That's because the SpaceX rocket is carrying samples of donated adult stem cells from a research laboratory at Mayo Clinic's Florida campus, which was launched from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida, on February 19th. So they're in space, Kiki. The stem cells are in space as we speak. These uh, cells come from the lab of Dr. Abba Zuber, who specializes in cellular treatments for disease and regenerative medicine. According to Dr. Zuber, the astronaut in space who's getting these cells is performing trypsinization of these cells to harvest the mesenchymal stem cells. That's one of the three types of stem cells that were sent into space. So this is an example of the type of stuff they're doing. They're going to trypsinize these cells from a biocell culture system, and then they're going to cryopreserve them. And in a few months, when they come back down, they're going to do some analyses and they're going to try and find out how these stem cells hold up in space. How do they survive this process as compared to cells in the terrestrial realm? I don't know what they're looking for there, but I guess there'd be differences. I know those cells are having a lot more fun than my four <laughs> cells sitting here, restrictions of gravity, feeling fat and heavy. Dr. Gianrico Faruglia, how do you like that pronunciation? Vice President Mayo Clinic and CEO of Mayo Clinic in Florida says, 
This space cargo carries important material for research that could hold the key for developing future treatments for stroke, a debilitating health issue. Research such as this accelerates scientific discoveries into breakthrough therapies and critical advances in patient care. I'm going to be honest. I think that's an overstatement, but it's pretty cool to have some stem cells, no matter whether they're not pluripotent or mesenchymal or whatever. They're doing science in space, and that's cool. Science in space. And the idea is the microgravity, you know, that you alluded yeah. to there. It's, you know, what is going on? What can happen when gravity is not a factor? And how does it change development? How does it change cell adhesion? I mean, we're finding all sorts of strange things already with microbes and there's different things happen in space. Different over there. It's different up there, out there, around there. I get freaked out when I think about space. I have a real agoraphobia thing when it comes to outer space. Well, you don't have to go there. <laughs> you can stay nice and safe here on Earth. What if they need me? All right. Well, down back to Earth. Australian researchers have discovered stem cells in the breast that may be linked to a high-risk form of breast cancer. This is a story in Nature Cell Biology recently published. Located in a region near the nipple, these newly founded, found stem cells have many molecular similarities to a subtype of breast cancer known as the triple negative breast cancers, or Claudin low cancers. It's important because about 15% of all breast cancers are these triple negative type, and they're really difficult to target. They're different from other forms of breast cancer. They don't have these three receptors that are commonly found on other breast cancer cells, and those receptors are, enable treatment. So the treatment for the triple negative is often different, and, and they're much more difficult to treat. These cells, in fact, the stem cells that they found near the nipple there, they bore a striking similarity. And maybe the origin, because of their similarity, it's inferred that they may be where the triple negative stem cell comes from. And that's from Professor Jane Viswader of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, who led the study. If proven that there is this connection, that this is the origin of these triple negative cancer, it's going to open up a whole new realm of therapy. Well, really, it's going to provide a model. In vitro, we can dump a bunch of drugs on these kind of clawed and low cancer model and find a, a new treatment. Compared to other kinds of breast cancer, the clawed and low cancers have a really high chance of recurrence after treatment, leading to a poor prognosis for patients. That's according to Professor Bisbada. And this study, I should say, it was made as a part, it's not a, you know, a one-off. They've been working on this for 20 years, a 20-year research program at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute that was really initially invested in not just understanding how breast cancers arise, but looking at how normal breast develops from stem cells and how breast tissue develops from stem cells. So using these advanced cellular bioinformatics and imaging technology, they discovered this long-lived type of stem cell that's responsible for the growth of mammary glands during pregnancies. And these cells, they usually are dormant and only activated when they're exposed to hormones. So now that we have this potential model in hand, I think it's a real inroad to understanding how these triple negative breast cancer cells are so evasive or how they can be targeted to make treatment more robust. So I think mm -hmm. it's a step in the right direction. And like all things, you know, we, we figured out a lot of breast cancer, and now we're focused on that subset. Like, I hope Dr. Lafley is going to tell us about glioblastoma. There's these cancers that are treatable, and then there's these cancers that are really tough. And they've been tough. So we need to figure out new ways of addressing them. And this is one example of how we can begin that process. 
Breast cancer and the study of breast cancer has been ongoing for you know decades now, and it's just so fascinating. You know, it's like, oh, and wait, a new stem cell? Wait a minute, what? Yeah. Something we hadn't characterized yet? This is great. You know, especially when we're talking about, like you said, these more difficult to treat types of cancer. Yes, just when you think there's no stone unturned, yeah. my new genes. We got to talk to Dr. Lafia about that. It seems like, you know, there's always a new target. We really, I don't know, tip of the iceberg, maybe. I feel right. like the iceberg's relatively unearthed, but it seems like there's just no shortage of new targets. And thanks, I guess, to the, the real um, rigor of the researchers out there. Mm -hmm. Congratulations to this group. Moving on. I got a headline for you. Obesity can reprogram muscle stem cells. Okay, so Whoa. just to elaborate, obesity, it's associated with reduced muscle mass and impaired metabolism. Mm -hmm. Doy, yeah, we all knew that. When you're fat, you're not really like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though he's kind of fat now. That's the only guy I know who's strong. Isn't that pathetic? I'm such an old man. <laughs> there, are, there are many more, and he's an, he's an old man, so yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I just, I just age myself. If your listeners out there are picturing me, I'm not that old, but I am quite old. Anyway, getting back to this subject, <laughs> epigenetic changes that affect the formation of new muscle cells may be a contributing factor, according to new research from Lund University in Sweden. In this new study, a doctoral student, I love it when doctoral students lead the work, because it's tough. You're just like in the deep end. You don't even know what you're doing. You're just trying to graduate. But not in Lund. Kaz, Kajza Davagard, sorry for the pronunciation, brilliant lady. She studied DNA methylation in muscle stem cells in both obese and non-obese individuals. So DNA methylation, we all know, it's this epigenetic process in which small molecules, these methyl groups, they're added to genes during the developmental process and during adult life, and it fine-tunes the gene's activity, kind of like a dimmer switch. So by comparing methylation in immature and mature muscle cells from healthy individuals, Dr. Davigard, or soon to be Dr. Davigard, discovered that the actual degree of methylation in these immature and mature muscle cells has a major impact on the maturation process. So it kind of correlates with maturation, the degree of methylation. And a pro-inflammatory gene, interleukin 32, IL-32, turned out to be particularly important, that gene methylation pattern with regard to maturation process and the insulin sensitivity of the developed muscle cell. And this impaired insulin sensitivity, you know, you find it very often in obese people and it's a risk factor for type 2 diabetes. So according to soon-to-be Dr. Davigard, I'm sorry, but I can't say your first name, by reducing the gene expression, the muscle's insulin sensitivity was increased. These findings were later mm. confirmed by experiments in mice. So soon to be Dr. Davigard then compared the differences in DNA methylation in muscle stem cells from obese individuals and individuals that were of normal weight and discovered that the partly different genes were regulated during the maturation process and methylation changes were more common, significantly more common in subjects who were obese compared to those who were not obese. So it's kind of a nice correlation. You see that the methylation process in these muscle cells may correlate with their BMI or whether or not they're obese. Although we should say, and the authors are the first to disclaim, that the cause and effect, in other words, whether the methylation is caused by obesity or whether those methylations increase the risk of becoming obese, that relationship of cause and effect can so far not be explained. Quoting Dr. Davigard. They may also have a protective function. 
Furthermore, we don't know what happens when you lose weight, whether the methylations are restored. This would be an interesting follow-up, and I agree. Yeah. Is it reversible? Are these people down a road that they can't return from? These interesting questions that I think are going to be more clinically important in terms of treatment. And also kind of getting at that cause and effect, because if the methylations are there and make you more likely to become obese, then if they are reversed when you lose weight, then that Mm -hmm. would imply that those are not obesity risk increasing, you know, that they're actually more causative. Yeah. She's just a grad student, Kiki. Why don't you lay off? This is an entire research program. Come on, postdoc will work on that. I think stuff like this is very interesting, you know, especially with regard to insulin sensitivity. So as your body changes to compensate for the increased fat deposition, what is actually going on? Because we know the fat cells themselves have their own specific metabolism, increasing estrogen production. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on there. So what is happening in the muscle tissue? And this is a very, very interesting direction to be following. Yeah, I say we just put a gastric sleeve on all of them, Kiki. No, no, bypass, bypass. Oh, yes, sorry, bypass. As long as it's not health and exercise. Surgical. As long as we don't improve their diet. No helping. There's no helping people. <laughs> Unless they want to be helped. Oh, the humans. So this is the human fallacy, right? What we can't yeah, change in ourselves. Yeah. We're not very good, are we? But we want to be good. We want to be so good. I'm not even trying anymore. <laughs> Just done. <laughs> Just going to be myself. Okay. All right. <laughs> Just accept it. Be yourself. Don't they always say that? Be yourself, even if you're just not good. That's right. Have the, what is it? The grace to accept the things that cannot change. <laughs> yes. That's right. All right, everyone. Our roundup is done and it is time for our interview. And our friends at Stem Cell Technologies are offering a free sample of NeuroCult NSA for brain tumor stem cells, which is the most referenced specialized cell culture medium for brain tumor stem cell culture. This culture medium supports the isolation and proliferation of brain tumor stem cells from both pediatric and adult tumors and from a variety of CNS tumor types and conforms to stringent quality control standards, which of course is what you want to ensure consistency. And stem cell podcast listeners can request a free sample. Free samples. That's great. They're going to get people hooked at www.stemcell.com slash sample neuro cult. That's right. www.stemcell.com slash sample neuro cult. Get some free media. Grow your cancer stem cells. Dr. Lathy is trying to kill them. You can grow them. Yes. Grow those neural cells. Let them be what they're going to be. Okay, so our guest today is Dr. Justin Lathia, Assistant Professor in the Department of Cellular and Molecular Medicine at the Lerner Research Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Lathia's research focus is how stem cell programs drive tumor progression and therapeutic resistance. To achieve this goal, he has active projects in cell adhesion mechanisms, cell-cell communication, and the interaction between tumor cells and the immune system. And most recently, Dr. Lathia's group published a paper in Cell Stem Cell describing a novel method on how stem cells in brain tumors evade immune signals around them. Dr. Lathia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you on the show. And we're just 
excited to hear about what you're working on. So can we just get started by telling our audience, just giving them a little bit more detail about your lab and its focus? Yeah, so, um, you know, we're really interested in how cellular heterogeneity develops and is maintained in the context of a tumor because it's long been appreciated that tumor cells are heterogeneous, you know, whether it's genetically, epigenetically, morphologically, histologically. What we're trying to understand is what is at the root of this? And, and we're firm believers that the stem cell state is one of the drivers of, of this heterogeneity. So that's really the, the focus of the laboratory is based on that principle that we believe that the stem cell state is, is really driving tumor progression. And it's key to understand this, especially in the context of therapy resistance. There's a lot of data and a lot of evidence out there that demonstrates that you can treat tumors with conventional chemo or radiotherapies. And what's left behind is this therapeutically resistant population of cells that has stem cell characteristics. Yeah, so let's let's pick up on that. You know, Kiki was saying in the intro, you're interested in cell adhesion mechanisms, cell-cell communication, tumor and host interaction, immune system. I mean, suffice to say, tumors have figured it out. They have <laughs> all these mechanisms for beating endogenous whatever, surveillance mechanisms that keep cancers from growing in healthy people. These tumors, once they get going and once they get this resistance, they're like unbeatable. Is that right? Not unbeatable, obviously, now that you've shown up. But let's talk about how, <laughs> how tough are these tumors and like along what, what kind of scope are we talking? Are there like wimpy tumors and then some tumors that are like no joke, like glio? Not surprisingly, the brain, the evil mastermind of tumors, is it the toughest? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I think that tumors are going to be on a spectrum. And I, I would like to believe that a lot of conventional therapies have the capacity to get rid of the wimpy tumors per se. But the ones that are no joke continue to be no joke. If you look at it, pancreatic, you know, some malignant liver tumors, colorectal cancer, and obviously the ones in the brain are, are very, very lethal. And, and, you know, as much as we think we're doing great things, I, I still think, you know, we're only sort of at the beginning of, of being able to, to crack this puzzle. So I, I think that these tumors still have a real fighting chance no matter what we do. I think they're the ultimate representation of evolution. If you think about it, no matter what pressures these tumors are put under, they figure out ways to evade it. Whether you, you hit them with tons of radiation or chemotherapy, you try to induce DNA damage, they figure out ways to either survive with a lot of damage or repair it efficiently. And now we're all focusing on trying to activate the immune system. And that, that's part of what this paper was about. But, you know, fine, go ahead and activate the immune system. These cells will figure out ways to either continue to be masked or in some ways interact with the immune system in a different way to basically continue to thrive. It's like a predator-prey interaction, just that one change drives a change on the other side of the equation. Yeah, along those lines, Justin, it seems like we're kind of alluding to this nuclear arms race there. If we continue to treat are we just it's like these antibiotic resistant drugs i know in tumor therapy it's different lines and we're not just you know ramping up the same therapy over and over but is there like the potential that we're, we're creating cancers and tumors by all this treatment tumors that probably never would have arisen back in the days when they killed someone early 
or do we see tumors nowadays that like kind of are unprecedented even versus like 10, 20 years ago? I mean, it's tough to say because as you go in and you think about the amount of information we can get out of every tumor now versus 10 to 20 years ago, it's a world apart. Um, the only thing I would say is that when we're treating patients with these aggressive therapies, the thing that we need to keep in mind is we are actually generating more aggressive tumors as a result of this. So something that we, we really do need to consider, and, and I alluded to it earlier, but I mean, there's a wealth of evidence now that says that you can take a, a group of tumor cells, whether it's in a dish, in a mouse, or possibly even in a human, you can look at pre and post treatment. And post treatment, I mean, these cells are really enriched in their stem cell characteristics, in their ability to respond to damage. So I think we have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, certain therapies are enriching for a population of more aggressive cells. And, and we've got some interesting projects in the lab looking at single cell fate decisions and what we're finding, and this is actually wild, but, but what we're finding is that, you know, if you put a cell in a stressful situation, what it's doing is it's basically giving all the receptors a cell would need to survive to one of the two daughter cells. So what that means is the cells that are being generated in these selective pressures have more survival mechanisms already built in. And, and that's scary when you think about it. Yeah. I've never actually considered tumors in this context. And it's such an interesting thought process to go down. Like, what are the treatments we're using and where are they going to eventually lead for patients and their health down the road? You treat once, what'll happen later? They're going to come back with an even stronger tumor potentially. Can you talk more specifically, though, about what you were looking at in this particular paper, considering glioblastomas and suppression of this self-renewal and how these tumor cells actually evade it? Yeah. So one of the things we started out with in this project is, is we've been firm believers that the tumor microenvironment is very instructive. And, and you can read you know, tons of beautiful work, great review papers that really crystallize this idea that cancer stem cells are an active participant and really embedded within a dynamic microenvironment. But that, in a way, is actually at odds with the idea that in aggressive tumors, you have a high degree of cellular turnover um, and you have areas of necrosis. You have a lot of cell death. And when cells die, they spew things out into their microenvironment. So how is it that the tumor microenvironment is really instructive and important for cells, yet it's full of these signals, these damage signals. They're also called damage-associated molecular patterns. So that's really the, the basis of the project, because we were trying to understand how a stem cell could survive and thrive in an environment that contains these damage signals. And these damage signals are sensed and reacted upon by a class of receptors, the toll-like receptor family, I mean, these are the, the mediators of innate immunity, right? So if there's something that goes wrong in, in any homeostatic tissue, these are sort of your first responders. They're also heavily used by the immune system to sense and respond to damage. And basically what the lab found was that the non-stem tumor cells, so these are the progeny of the cancer stem cells, had a high amount of one toll-like receptor called toll-like receptor 4, but for some reason, the cancer stem cells had a very low amount of that receptor. So it was kind of a little bit challenging because normally what we do is we try to remove a receptor or a pathway that's higher in the stem cells. But in this case, we had to restore the pathway. So when we overexpressed toll-like receptor 4 in the cancer stem cells, 
we potently shut down their ability to self-renew, mm-hmm. and we mapped out a signaling axis that involved sort of something that was under-described in the literature. It's part of an epigenetic class of regulators called retinoblastoma binding protein 5, and RB binding protein 5 is very important at controlling stem cell transcription factors. So really the take-home message is that when TLR4 is intact and it becomes active, one of the first things that occurs is a cell loses its ability to self-renew. Now that makes sense, right? If you're in a damaged environment, why would you want to make more copies of yourself? However, cancer stem cells have figured out a way, and we're still trying to understand why, to have lower amounts of toll-like receptor 4. That way they can continue to do their thing despite the fact that there's damage in the environment. Well, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot there, and I, I want to get to it, but just because you were just talking about the transcription factor axis there targeted by RBBP5, I just want to clarify for our listeners, this is SOX2, NANOG, and OCT4, which are familiar to a lot of our pluripotent stem cell crew because, you know, they're implicated in this pluripotent stem cell self-renewal. Is that a mechanism that's conserved even in, like, adult neural progenitors that self-renew, or are these glios some kind of embryonic remnant that's reactivated? I guess the question is, are SOX, NANOG, and OCT4 firing off in self-renewing progenitors in adult brains as we speak, in normal, I should say, progenitors? I would say SOX2, certainly. NANOG and OCT4, not to the same extent. But again, what we're excited about is there's very little known about RB binding protein 5. So something we've been thinking a lot about, you know, as you alluded to, is, is this entire signaling axis intact in each and every stem cell and we just haven't sort of noticed it? Or is it something specific about either embryonic or, or brain tumor stem cells that for some reason has emerged? And then, as you also mentioned, this question of what is happening to the prevalence of those toll-like receptors on the outside of the cell that actually interface the cell with its, its external environment. Do we have any idea, are there any possible pathways that could lead to the downregulation of these receptors on this cancer cells? It's something we're looking into pretty aggressively in terms of is for some reason, you know, the, the production of the receptor being silenced at the, you know, epigenetic level? Mm-hmm. Is it the fact the, the receptor is being made and not appropriately trafficking to the cell membrane. And the added twist, and, and some people out there will, will be familiar with this work, there's a lot of beautiful work involving toll-like receptor 4 in liver cancer stem cells. And there it has a complete opposite function. There it is absolutely essential for nanog function and activity. So we've actually found the complete opposite in the brain as they have in the liver. And, and we think that the signaling intermediates may be telling us something because toll-like receptor can function in two separate ways. It can use the adapter protein, Mighty88, which, again, the group that has shown it's important in the liver has provided some beautiful data there. Our data is actually in the Mighty88 independent manner. So we think that Mighty88 may be a key decision node from a signaling perspective as well. And and we're, we're trying to design experiments to tease that out. So notwithstanding the related elements that may be upstream of that TLR4 downregulation as like a therapeutic option, I'm saying, is there a way that you could, because you said the difficulty here where usually you're looking something that's permissive for cancer growth and you could just knock it out with some compound or something that neutralizes it. Here you have to restore the pathway. What's the therapeutic avenue towards uh, introducing 
that to, to a patient with glio. Is there anything? Are you searching for it? Or are there ways that people can kind of like rescue a cell death pathway in cancer? I mean, the easiest way to do it would be to go back to what we do best, right? So, yeah, it would, it's going to be troublesome or challenging to restore the expression of toll-like receptor 4, but what if we could target RB binding protein 5? So mm -hmm. we are thinking about ways to do that. The other thing that is possible, and I will say it's being assessed as an adjuvant immune therapy, is to just flood the system with additional toll-like receptor ligands. In the paper, we did have one experiment where we were able to demonstrate, even in the absence of an immune system, if you treat the tumor cells with the toll-like receptor 4 ligand, you actually reduce the growth of the overall tumor. So I, I think it is possible. I mean, the one thing I want to clarify is, even though in the schematics for the paper we kind of drew it as an all or none, there is some baseline expression of toll-like receptor 4 on the cancer stem cells. We just don't have a good grasp on is it enough to initiate a signal? Is the signaling weak? So that we still need to think a little bit more about. Just for people who might not work specifically in the, the signaling pathway sciences, like what are the challenges to working out the specifics of you know, this particular pathway? I mean, it's an enormous challenge, and we're not standard cell signaling yeah. people. I mean, every time I, I look at a subway map in a foreign city, that to me resembles a signaling pathway because there's, there's an unbelievable amount of redundancy. And I think that we have a reductionist way of thinking that, well, you know, this protein phosphorylates this protein and this activates this downstream mediator. I just think it's, it's still so complicated. You know, I mean, all we've really done is we've sort of assembled a series of functional associations, right? So we know that, you know, if we mess with the upstream of RB binding protein 5 that, you know, we can reduce its expression, but, you know, it's, it's still very complicated. And, and the thing that we can't do really well, or at least for this signaling axis right now, is we still don't have an appreciation for all the other functional inputs, both upstream and downstream. There is certainly functional redundancy. So I think we're just going to need a lot more in vitro studies and, and a lot more larger scale genomic assessment to figure out what else is possibly changing when we perturb one node. Right. You talk about the, the complexity of these pathways. And I, I just want to be clear here. When you talk about that subway map, we're talking about one pathway, right? I mean, that's what's so amazing. You look at these and you think, oh, there's a lot going on here. And it's one pathway and all the little interlopers that interact with it. So along those lines versus more traditional chemo radiotherapy, what are some of the risks here if we could implement a treatment? Let's say your example here with the toll-like receptor or any of these new ways of immunotherapy. What are we talking about? For example, if we were to flood the system with extra toll-like receptor ligand in this case to try and compensate, what are the risks for side effects in that type of therapy? Sure. I mean, then what you do is you we'd basically generate an overactivity of the immune system. And, and that in itself, if you think about autoimmune diseases, I mean, that is you know, I, I know it's a simplistic way of thinking about it, but that is an overactivity of immune cells. I mean, the other issue is that, you know, the immune cells don't have an absolute infinite lifespan. So you could basically exhaust out a lot of key important mm -hmm. elements of, of the immune system just by doing that. 
Wow. So it's really, that's a tough choice. I mean, you could be, is that really a thing? If you were to hyperactivate someone's immune system, they would, what, be more prone to illness and at an earlier age? Or they'd come down with hematological malignancies? Or what are we talking about there in terms of long-term? Yeah, health? I mean, all of those things are, are certainly within the realm of possibilities. Wow. So it's pick your poison once again, just different kind of poison as chemo and radio, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. How would you say that those compare, though? I mean, this new wave of therapies, we talk about the, you know, chemo and radio is, oh, when we look back in 100 years, we're going to think we're all total barbarians. Do you think <laughs> that the new wave of therapies, I mean, we all know there, there are side effects to any treatment, but they're much gentler. Am I wrong? It depends on the patient, right? It depends on their response rate. If you look at, and I know we're shifting gears here, but if you think about, you know, the key or the, the major immunotherapies, the activating T cells via inhibiting checkpoints, you know, they're working well in a subset of patients with melanoma, a subset of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. They're being aggressively tested in a variety of other tumors, but I think there are going to be a subset of patients that really benefit from these therapies. I think that the key is to just figure out who these people are and ultimately why they do or do not respond to these therapies. Yeah, it's heading down the road of that personalized medicine pathway where you have a particular genetic, genomic profile that works best for certain treatments. I'm thinking about what you're working on here, and you mentioned earlier the retinoblastoma binding protein. When we're talking about stimulating, you know, throwing in a bunch of toll-like receptor 4, maybe that'll make the cells in the entire body that have this more hyperactive, but the retinoblastoma binding protein, how specific is that to neural cells versus cells in the rest of the body? Would that be a more specific target? It possibly would be. I think we need to do a more careful analysis of where this protein is throughout the body. You know, yeah. we just sort of stumbled upon it because it's expressed in brain tumors. But I can tell you that it's sort of, it's part of a larger set of families that control the epigenetic state. And I, I know well that it's expressed in a variety of other tissue types. So I don't think it's going to be super specific for brain tumors or even cells in the brain. Nevertheless, do you have any kind of preliminary, like small animal trials? Are you, are you trying to move therapeutic into the clinic, if you don't mind sharing? Or, or is that in line? Or are you just like defining what the mechanism in here is? And then it's the subject of future work to figure out a compound or a target. Yeah, I mean, we're thinking about how you would even construct large-scale screening efforts to identify really potent compounds. You know, we do have another project in the lab, and, and we published a paper last year where we showed that myeloid-derived suppressor cells, so these are cells that are very immature that kind of get activated and end up in the tumor microenvironment, so there's a really elegant interaction they have with cancer stem cells. And we've actually been able to leverage that interaction using low-dose 5-FU. So this is a compound given to colorectal cancer patients. So we give about a 20-fold less dose, and we can actually target these cells. And we had some really good in vitro data and in vivo data. And we actually have an ongoing phase one clinical trial here at the Cleveland Clinic where we're targeting those cells in patients. And we've treated a couple patients so far. So, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out how efficacious it is. But as part of that study, we identified a, a novel molecular mechanism and a signaling axis that the cancer stem cells use to communicate with the myeloid-derived suppressor cells. 
and there are drugs available to target that axis. So we're actively working on, on how to leverage those compounds for possible use in brain tumors. So it seems like you're taking from a mixed bag. I see cancer therapy in the future, a combination of personalized genomics and then, you know, taking uh, from uh, the whole catalog of approaches that we've developed from the dawn of time. Do you agree that we're still going to be using 5-FU and more traditional chemotherapeutic agents, maybe as adjuvants or in combination with more new wave stuff? Or do you think there's going to be a time where we're just done with chemo? I'd love to say I think there's going to be a time when we're done with chemo, but I think at least in the short and intermediate future, you know, the thing that we're thinking about now is, is there is a reason that these therapies continue to be given to patients, right? They have to work to at least some extent. So that what we're thinking, and again, it's a reductionist way of looking at it, but what we're thinking is that these cells are killing the majority of the tumor cells and leaving behind the cancer stem cells. So could we develop therapies to target the cancer stem cells? in combination with standard of care, and maybe that's where we're headed. And then eventually one day, maybe, you know, we can start phasing out chemo. But I think that, again, there's, there's a reason these are still being used, right? I, I think physicians would not be treating patients if the drugs weren't effective, if the therapies didn't at least work in some context. And we should say we're doing better than ever with cancer. Is that right? I mean, it's the, the treatments and the survival for most cancers is improving, yes? I am a very optimistic person, so I would certainly agree with that statement. I do think that there's still a lot to be learned, and, and we've, got, we've got ways to go, but I think that there's a lot of really exciting work going on that's leveraging experiences in the clinic, feeding back into you know, the basic science models, and the translational pipeline is, is there. Yeah. Are you collaborating with people on clinical work where you are, or are you doing mostly lab bench work with your lab? The majority of what we do is lab bench work, and we do some animal model stuff. We've got a great group of neurosurgeons, medical oncologists, neuro-oncologists, and sort of radiation oncologists that we're, we're working with on all of these clinical and translational projects. So they're the ones that, that we interface with, and they're the ones that shepherd the therapies into the clinic. Nice big things on your plate for the future? I mean, this is what we're doing. We're, you know, yeah. one of the paradigms that we've been developing is we want to identify molecular mechanisms and, and take a two-step approach. We've done a lot in terms of developing drugs and understanding how they work. And, you know, maybe it's luck, maybe it's just sort of creative thinking, but we're trying to identify known FDA-approved drugs that inhibit the pathways we're interested in and use those to leverage early phase clinical trials, and then use the power of medicinal chemistry to modify those compounds to try to make more effective therapies. And we've got multiple projects that have taken this approach where we try to get, you know, target inhibition quickly and effectively with an FDA-approved compound and then modify for the second generation. That seems like a beneficial way to go because you don't have to go through all the drug approval process. Absolutely, at least the first time around. And the other thing that I think that we've we've been pushed by the clinicians to think a, a little bit more about is, so we can give a drug to a patient, what are you going to measure? So we're trying to figure out, can we measure levels of certain cells, proteins in the blood, in the tumor samples after the patient's been treated, to try to get as much information to guide future developmental efforts. Thinking about the glioblastoma specifically, when we're talking about brain tumors, it's not the same kind of marker. You've got the blood-brain barrier. So what kind of markers can you look for in the blood when you're talking about something in the brain? Our 
studies with 5-FU, they're actually predicated on targeting the myeloid-derived suppressor cells before they get into the brain. So, uh, you know, there we can just measure levels in the blood. But for other studies, yeah, it's going to be challenging to figure out whether we inhibited a cellular process or a certain signaling pathway in the brain in real time. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's going to remain a challenge. Just to close here, unless you want to say anything else, I just so we can have some context for this for, for our listeners, what's the survival rate for glioblastoma? I mean, it's a terrible, terrible cancer, yes? Yeah, I mean, the, the median survival rate range is somewhere between 12 and 18 months. And I will tell you that the treatments haven't been dramatically different than they have been for the last 30 years. And, you know, the, the median survival hasn't moved that much more in the last 30 years. There's factors that really predict survival, right? So one, there's an innate ability to respond or not respond to chemotherapy. Uh, the younger a patient is, the better the prognosis. There are genetic mutations that actually provide a survival advantage. But other than those things, we're still kind of, from a therapy perspective, trying to figure out how to best attack this very aggressive tumor. Yeah, just looking, I think anything that can reduce or improve survival time, reduce the tumors in the first place. That's going to be just wonderful for people who are struggling with these things. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, no problem. It's my pleasure. Yeah, it's really great to talk with you about your work. Fingers crossed. Move into more therapies in the future. <laughs> All right, Kiki, that was a really nice interview with Dr. Justin Lafey at the Cleveland Clinic. He's targeting cancer stem cells to try and knock them out. But these are these are serious players. I mean, we're just at the tip of the iceberg and understanding how do they, these crafty cancer stem cells, they just, they evade, 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 but they're not going to find any ground in the future that Dr. Lafey is placed, uh, painting. He's, he's going to shut them down, Kiki. What do you think? Well, I mean, there's so many different ways that this can go, but I mean, we're really, I, I think as he alluded to, this is really going to get into very personalized medicine in the future. I mean, it's just so individualized down to what genes are active in your particular tumor cells in that particular organ system. You know, it's like, where is the tumor? What organ system? What are the genes that are activated? There's so many very specific factors at hand. And I really think it's a microcosm of evolution in action. You know, we've got natural selection taking place, you know, where if we throw chemotherapy at a cancer, the cells that are left are just going to be stronger with adaptations, mutations that allow them to survive better in the environment. I mean, it's just, it's this microcosm of evolution. Fascinating. That was a great point that you brought up. And I, li I like that metaphor because that you're painting because although it's creepy to me, we're like creating a whole new like race of cancer cells out there. I mean, the equivalent of like the peak of evolutionary hierarchy. These are the humans of, of cancers relative to the cancers of our of the 50s. Right. Maybe when we first started studying it, are kind of like the primates. But I don't know. Maybe I'm taking the metaphor too far because that takes me <laughs> to a scary place where there's a super cancer running around that's going to destroy us all. Yeah, don't don't go to the scary places. Let's have a rant instead. Okay, instead okay. of being scary, let's be angry. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
anger. It's one of the best ways to get rid of fear. Let's <laughs> have a good old stem cell podcast rant. This is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Tell you what we're ranting about. I mean, I'm sorry for all those without kids, but here's a little sneak preview and maybe a little birth control. I'm upset with my kids because they have no grace. They're kind of a-holes and they're really unpredictable. And I'm speaking particularly about like gifts and getting things. I mean, I know it's not the holiday season, but it just sprung to me because I got my kid, you know, a little something like I get him pretty much every day. And he looked at me and said, I don't like this and just dropped it on the floor. And I was devastated. And it reminded me that like, Kids really aren't very good at faking it. And they kind of like are jerks when it comes to the grace of acting like you like something, even though you don't. You know what I'm talking about, Kiki? Yeah, there's no social filter, right? And they're just honest. It's like whatever's in their mind at that moment is what comes out their mouth, you know? And it's the same thing happened. My son's birthday was this weekend and it was his birthday party and... I worked really hard to put together this great Pokemon party for him with activities and things to do. And, you know, the party, I thought it was great. All these kids came and my son was running around and I saw a smile on his face the whole day. And then afterwards, I'm like, hey, what did you think? How was, you know, did you enjoy your party? And he's like, eh, not really. I'm like, (laughs) wait, what? What are you talking about? You looked like you had fun. He's like, I, like, did you like anything? And he's like, well, I liked this one thing. But then, you know, this other, this thing that we did, these kids did something and I didn't like what they did. And so, you know, he had, took this one little moment and it basically made him not enjoy in his that. memory, ruined the whole party. And I'm just well, like, I'll tell ah. you what. dude, you got to fake it, dude. All right. Tell fake your That's mother. The first thing you should learn. Fake it. Tell your mother. <laughs> That you love her every I minute. Loved that party. It was the <laughs> it best was the party, best. mom. All that work yeah. you put into it. It was great. If we're honest, we should kind of reflect about how why, why do we need our kids to to thank us at all? You know, a lot of times I'll be honest, I, know, I right? do something that I think's awesome. And then objectively, when I think of it from a kid's perspective, it's not that awesome. But I'm so desperate for that, you know, the the gratitude, I guess, or just the joy on my kid's face that maybe I'm projecting a little bit of my expectations. And let me just tell you, Kiki, right. your Pokemon party was awesome, okay? Thanks. You did a great job. You're a great <laughs> mom. He did have a good time. He just couldn't remember it in he's, the moment. He you didn't know? remember that. He didn't remember the whole party being awesome. Just this one thing. Oh. stinking thing that's ruined everything. Nice yeah. party, mom. You really yeah. blew it. So this Try again gets, next year. I know. Try again. But this gets at, you know, the idea of these social graces. Why do we have them? You know, is it just to make our, like you said, these projected expectations? Like, I think it's just so it, we don't get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> it's like direct. It's just self-preservation. You know, it's a lot of people didn't have grace. They got punched in the face until they just didn't live anymore. And they were bred out. Yeah. Everybody... Have gratitude, show gratitude, don't get punched in the face. (laughs) This is what we want to teach our children. (laughs) There's the lesson for today. Oh my goodness. If you liked this rant, let us know. Also, if you have any other rant ideas, send them to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. Dalen, this concludes episode 87 of the Stem Cell Podcast. 
Another episode full of amazing scientific research advances. Great interview with Dr. Lathia, and I'm really excited to see where his work goes. Everybody, be sure to tune in for our next episode. And of course, you know, we're going to give you those interviews. We're going to give you more papers. I am looking forward to the next one. Me too, Kiki. Absolutely. Everybody, be cool. We'll catch you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>